Hi, Steve. Steve? Oh my God. Steve's, <laughs> I forgot Steve's not here. Uh, instead, I'm speaking with my friend, Ryan Delnick, who, who lives in Calgary. Hi, hi, Ryan. Welcome to Everyday Meeple. Hey, Mitch. How's it going? Super glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's, it's no problem. Thanks, thanks for filling in. Um, I, I got in touch with Ryan. We've been friends for, since, since high school, since early high school. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and strangely, uh, I was trying to think back. Uh, I don't think you and I ever actually played uh, many board games in high school. I played a lot of Balderdash in high school, but I don't think ever with you. Yeah, no, I don't think we played too many board games. I think we were more uh, into hacky sack and uh, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> we, well, we played a lot of uh, video games. Uh, That's true. Eventually, yeah. a lot of Mario Kart, a lot of, uh, of after high school, a lot of NHL 99, maybe. Yeah, some golden eye in there. But still, we never, we never played a lot of board games together. Even it then, wasn't our thing back we then. We lived no. together for years. When, one time when we were living together, I was working on... Uh, a version of Risk uh, combining Stargate. I was making Risk and just changing the map to be little Stargate areas. And and I remember one time when we were living together, I was talking about making uh, an Ottawa version of Monopoly uh, that centered on, <laughs> on Weed and EI. But we never played a lot of games. Uh, no, totally. Was, I'm surprised. Uh, I, uh, what did you say? Starfinder and Risk? Star, uh, Stargate. Stargate. I'm surprised that doesn't even exist. Like, I'm a, uh, yeah, I'm a surprise. Like, <laughs> it's a it's a good one for us. Uh, but I figured I would I would talk to you. We've talked about having you. Uh, Steve and I were gonna, actually going to interview you uh, a little while ago because uh, yeah. your your terrain art has uh, was kind of blowing up on Twitter and stuff a while yeah. back. And I thought it was really interesting because you have sort of two two favorites for tabletop gaming that have persistent uh, for most of your life, where you have loved Risk. For most of your life, yeah, absolutely. You've played a lot of Risk, and you've played a lot of D and D, and your your current love is D and D and minis and terrain, and mm-hmm. that's right, right? Yeah, you, absolutely. You say that's accurate. Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. <laughs> I started playing D and D just before high school, or maybe it was at the, the end of just before high school, I think it was, and into like the first year of high school with a couple guys, and um, and then. I maybe played for a few years and then I didn't play again until I think it was like four or five years ago, got back into it with the kind of explosion yeah, yeah. that's uh, been going on. Uh, the thing that I thought was interesting, and this was my whole hope of tying everything together, is that D&D and Risk share the same DNA. All, all games sort of do, but, yeah. but D&D and Risk especially sort of have this shared DNA where if you go back, I have... I actually have three pages of notes. It's, it started a little while ago whenever I, I got uh, a book called Eurogames and was, was following the history of, of Eurogames. And sort of the, this third or fourth burst of, of gaming started with Catan. I don't know oh, if you're familiar right. with, yeah, with right. Settlers of Catan. And so I got excited about that and I started looking about, well, where did that came from? And, but that book starts slotting everything back to 1800s and Kriegspiel, which is, uh, which is one of the first... Uh, sort of condensed war games where okay. war games have always existed. Uh, they've sort of always used them, but Kriegspiel, uh, what's the fellow's name? Uh, he's got a George von Reiswicks, and I'm probably oh, pronouncing okay. that wrong. He, he created uh, Kriegspiel as sort of a condensed set where previously everything was sort of a chest based game with like a grid map 
and he he built sort of actual terrain uh, right. start, started working on measurement rules for movement and and worked on scales and tons of tables and then uh, introduced uh, not so much miniatures but small cubes that represented all the different right. things and then there was uh, he actually had terrain uh, pieces right and then that got so popular that it started to take over the uh, the world for for wargaming with armies spread and spread around Europe and stuff. And his yeah. son George, <laughs> George's son George, uh, refined it and spent more time working on the tables. And the original Craigspiel worked with uh, combat decisions were sort of uh, settled by judges, sort of game masters that that decided how things went. Right. And then he brought in. Uh, more tables and more uh, dice action. It was, I think there was dice in both of them, but uh, the newer version relied less on judges. Okay, I, right. I'm going to skip through this so we can we can talk about what you're up to. Uh, no worries, no worries. I think, he, he, I think just on top quickly. I think the first war gaming uh, early book that I know of was the uh, Little Wars. Yeah, which, H.G. Uh, Wells. That's yeah, H.G. Wells. Exactly. That's coming up. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's coming up. That's the that's the next step. So, but but right. the really interesting thing with Kriegspiel before we jump to H.G. Wells mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that George's son had was it George's son? I don't know. One of the Georges uh, <laughs> had to go meet the king, uh, the Prussian king, and so he rebuilt his whole game into this one cabinet, and, oh, wow. and the cabinet was full of drawers, and all the drawers had all the different uh, again, not so much minis, more resources, and right, he also yeah. had built plaster terrain pieces. For, for for mountains and trees and all things. So this whole yeah. cabinet was full of miniature terrain and, and miniatures basically and was just like what what sort of modern gamers have now where you're working constantly on building terrain pieces and set pieces and yeah. and that's that's sort of what this version of the early war games built. Uh, that's very I, cool. Which I thought was really interesting. And after George the Sun refined everything into being more reliant on tables uh there was a particular i can't remember what conflict happened but one side had relied heavily on on what they'd learned from the the craig spiel training and and sort of what do you call that whenever you run scenarios like they basically they people were, um, armies were always running scenarios through these games i guess that's what we'll call it okay and some relied on it more and more heavily it was used in yeah. in academic training uh, for officers, and it was used to plan wars. So right. they would they would run these scenarios of okay, we want to attack this these people. Let's what you side will be them. Would they try and get all of the 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 intel they could get, and then they yeah. would build the rule set, and they would use these games to to plan stuff and uh, simulate it out basically. Simulate constantly until they had yeah. a plan that they felt was effective. And there was a particular scenario that. Uh, some of the older generals didn't like, uh, I don't know. I'm, this is where my note taking falls apart. But basically, George's <laughs> plan to streamline his father's game fell apart. Okay. And so they, the next sort of generation of that, they went back to a, a bigger mix of uh, having judges and, and the tables and the dice kind of thing. So they brought back in a game master, right? Right, okay. And then, and then in 1913... H.G. Wells, who is a known pacifist, mm -hmm. doesn't like war, created uh, Little Wars, 
to and he was kind of uh, jokingly i think saying well, why don't we why don't we handle wars like this instead right and, eh? <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> and so he brought in uh, a rule set that uh, took took those war games away from generals and the armies and and let you play them in your house and he right. was sort of the first step towards home gaming and tabletop gaming for for people yeah totally there's lots of cool pictures online of him setting up and playing and stuff like that if anybody yeah, ever wants I, to look at stuff like that i keep planning on buying the book because i think it'll be a really dry read have you ever read it i have not read it no no it's it sells for like 13 bucks uh, as a pdf and i i keep planning on getting it. i'll get around to it yeah it'd be cool to have for sure just to see what was going on i would just like to skim it and see uh sort of what the rule set is how Mm -hmm. how much of a gm like he has he has it set up to play with like springed cannons and stuff to like right yeah actually yeah. build stick forts and like knock them over so it's, yeah i'd yeah. really like to see what's going on in that uh, yeah same here i'd like to read it as well just because i mean as a gm myself i'm always i'm always looking for inspiration from other things and other places that that you know i can throw into my game someplace and spice things up for my players I uh, are you holding up with this history lesson? Because I, I am. I, no, totally. I didn't know about the first half of it. So yeah, I, I mean, like I said, Little Wars is where my knowledge of all of it sort of comes in. We're we're almost caught up to the present day, and then cool. and then I want to talk to you about what you've been up to. So yeah, I just like to talk about where things come from, and I, I love that you knew the H.G. Wells things because I never mm -hmm. know like how obscure is that. But it's you know anybody who plays D and D probably has a you know, it comes up. There's, there's yeah, great... totally. I think I think like uh, with social media and everything, um, I think if anybody knows anything about the sort of war gaming past, the it's it's gonna begin with the HG Wells because there's a there's a lot of stuff online. I mean, that's how I was exposed to it. Just yeah. like somebody posting a picture of HG Wells on, I think he's on the like ground outside and there's like little buildings and he's got his soldiers and it's like HG Wells like tabletop gaming kind of thing or or backyard gaming, I guess. But um, yeah, so I mean, I think that's where most people are gonna come yeah. into the history, but it's totally fascinating. I like, uh, I like what you're teaching me here. I think HG Wells is probably a little farther back than most people will come into it. But uh, the other thing that HG Wells tries to do in, in Little Wars is to uh, like all of those Kriegspiel games and anything like that uh, is so heavy on Intel and data and charts. Mm. And he, he tried to simplify and streamline that system so that you you know you didn't have to learn uh, right you didn't have to go Clearly. to university to learn war yeah in order yeah to play yeah the game you could right. just play the game yeah so, uh the next big jump uh goes all the way to 1952 for me now i i'm probably missing there's probably other people trying to refine stuff right. along the yeah way. there's probably a ton of stuff but but the next big and this is a really big one uh is 1952 with charles roberts who is a, a history buff and he he joined i i don't know i my notes are terrible again but he was looking he joined up to some extent i don't know if it was a national guard or or what i i'm terrible at this sort of thing i'm not a reporter <laughs> it's weird right? neither am i <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he he wanted to he was really interested in in learning more uh about war and war games and he couldn't find enough so he ended up working out his own uh, game which he ended up calling tactics and started publishing it himself 
and within a year had sold about 2,000 copies and mm, wow. started Avalon Hill. Oh, okay. You must be familiar with Avalon yeah, Hill. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. So Avalon Hill became uh, the, the ignition point for... The catalyst. The catalyst <laughs> for wargaming, for, yeah. for what became the game industry. But uh, his, his game Tactics sells amazingly well they start uh publications and from there uh you get into tsr which is where uh gary gygax and yeah dave aronson so they were playing I think, a game called Chainmail. gary gygax was working on he had his his game group and they were refining stuff and trying to bring in sort of fantasy elements and then dave aronson but they were playing mostly just straight war game but they were trying mm-hmm. to bring in fantasy elements. And Dave Aronson, uh, sort of on the other side of the country, they got bored with how war games worked. So they started working on different ways to play them. So they were also working on fantasy elements, but he, Dave Aronson's group developed role-playing. And then Dave Aronson and Gary Gygax got together and they loved what each other was doing and they ended up putting together Dungeons and Dragons. Right. But, uh, right, so on the, on the other side of that, same stream in in 1954 right whenever uh charles roberts was putting together tactics in france albert lamaris do you know that name i'm probably not pronouncing it correctly are you familiar with the the french short movie that won academy awards the red balloon Mm, i can't say that i am off the top of my head it's a black and white movie uh with a red balloon i think just following a boy through through france oh through the city one okay, of, it Academy sounds Award. familiar, but okay. Yeah, I, I've never seen it. Uh, so the director, before he directed that movie, was on vacation with his family and invented a game called uh, Conquer the World in English. Conquête du monde, I think. Mm. Uh, and it, it took wargaming and simplified it and simplified it to where there were no tables. It was just uh, sort of troop movement. It had navies and armies and you settled everything with dice. So you would get uh, dice for each army that you committed and the defenders would get a dice for each army they had and you would roll dice and the loser lost. And he took that to uh, a French publishing company called Miro and they had, they took, he took it to Miro. Miro loved it and they had game designer Jean-René Verne who uh, is, is famous for doing Roman Carthage which came out a few years before Conquête du Monde, and just got a re-release fairly recently. His game didn't, his war game didn't really pick up then, but it's loved, and it just, in the last, like, five, ten years, got a beautiful uh, republication. Is that a real word? That's a real word. <laughs> I guess so. Look it up. We'll make it one. <laughs> but, so Miro uh, took that game, smoothed it out. Uh, he, he got rid of the navies, and he, uh, he set it up so that the defenders won ties and sort of streamlined a bunch of stuff. And I see they, where we're at here. And they, they published that. And then they showed that uh, to Parker Brothers in about 1957. Mm. And Parker Brothers loved it. And, and they really wanted to publish it. Ironically, they, they, they used to have, they had a problem publishing Clue. I talked about this uh, fairly recently because they, yeah. had a, they had a rule that they couldn't publish a game that dealt with murder. Oh, right, but, right. But, Wars, what wars? Yeah, wars, not <laughs> mass murder. murder. That's, that's weird. Uh, but maybe they got past that because they'd published Clue earlier, 
and it had done so well. Maybe they were like, eh, maybe we need more murder. But they yeah. published, they, they got rid of the uh, maximum for the dice. So you could only have three on the one side and two for the defenders. Mm. And that fixed a lot of the problems. And, and they released Risk. And Risk, uh, they didn't think it was going to do well because most of their games cost $2 and Risk was going to cost like $7. Oh, and, and a lot of their games. A little bit more to it. And they, were, and they were worried because it was a post-war environment and a lot of parents were like stopping buying toy guns. and. Yeah, that makes sense. I rarely think of Risk as a kid's game. Even when I was a kid, it was like I was playing one of, the, one of my dad's games, not yeah. one of my games, you know? Yeah, and totally. In the first year, it sold 100,000 copies. And, and within two years, it had sold over a million. Wow. That's in the 1959. Yeah. And like today... Uh, a self-publishing or a small publisher does a print run of 5,000 and hopes they can sell that. And yeah. If you get a thousand out the door, you're like probably stoked. And when was the last time you played risk? Um, the last time I played risk, I think was about a month ago. Hillary and I here in the, uh, the lockdown. Have you guys, always, the board. have you always played uh, like the same board? Have you played a themed board? Have you played? No, we we're playing just the classic risk board. Um, we've had it for years and, you know, we pull it out. I'm surprised Hillary likes it because it's not really the tend of game she gravitates towards, but, um, yeah, she, she totally gets into it. Is it the one with the, uh, the classic eighties just cut plastic? Uh, no, it's not. Bit? It's a newer version where the, the, you get the, like the little soldiers yeah. and the little cannon so much and, better, the, and the cavalry. That's so much Which better. Which one? The old the, one or the new one? Having actual things. Oh yeah, 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 totally. <clears throat> the game I grew up with was those uh, ah, like, yeah, weird remember. spirals and like cut yeah. triangles and like just weird yeah, yeah. shaped bits of plastic, just like the cheapest extruded cut yeah. plastic <laughs> they could cram in a thing. I have a I have a, a version here from the '60s that's at least different sized, really nicely colored wood bits. They're just oh, wow. squares and and long bits, and but it's so much nicer. And then the other yeah. one that I have here is the actual molded like infantry and cavalry. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It makes it easier to just remember what you're moving and stuff there's like that. A, uh, I think it's with Avalon Hill again because there's a really neat thing where um, Parker Brothers put out Risk and then <laughs> basically General Mills bought Parker Brothers mm-hmm. and then has, and then Tonka bought uh, General Mills or something or they bought the toy. I think General Mills tied uh, Parker Brothers in with like Kenner and then Tonka oh, bought everything. Right. And then Hasbro, who has been buying Hasbro, everything yeah. for years, bought Tonka, which included Parker Brothers and everything. But they have done, uh, I think, a fantastic job, as much as they're a huge conglomerate of sort of reorganizing where games go. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they've pushed the Risk uh, IP to Avalon Hill. So Risk is now uh, not, not, not like the regular Risk, but like the, the smarter, newer versions of Risk are coming right. out on Avalon Hill. Uh, Rob Davial, I, again, I probably didn't say that name right. Do you know Rob Davial? I do not. Dav- I don't. Davial. He, uh, <laughs> he worked for Hasbro for years. He uh, in, invented legacy games. He, so he invented uh, back in the early 90s, I think. Uh, he, he had an idea to turn Clue into a legacy game uh, where he thought, how, I think his quote was something along the lines of, how come uh, we keep inviting these people to dinner 
and and they keep killing people or something so he wanted <laughs> he from that he was kind of thinking of an idea of like what if the game remembered and changed and he pitched that idea at a Hasbro meeting they didn't really like it they kind of shelved it but i think a year or two later they let him run with it and they put out risk legacy are you okay risk legacy i'm not i didn't even realize you and hillary should should find it if you can i don't know if it's still being so what's the what's the sort so, of take on it so you start off with a regular risk game and every game when certain milestones are passed or after each game things start to change so oh i see there's okay. little boxes of secrets that get opened when certain things happen uh, ah. stickers that go on the board you you rename stuff you tear th up cards new cards so it's not out. just like a one Rules. game sort of thing so there's a rule book and there's gaps in those rule books. And, and as you open new boxes, new rules come out, new pieces ah, come out, everything expands and changes. And it takes, it's a 15 game campaign. And at the end of the 15 games, you have a completely new risk board that is replayable. Right. And huh. it's personal. It's like there, it, it was sort of the first time that the legacy system has been put into a game. And it was the first time that a game became a time capsule. So all of the times that you played that game get marked on the board and you remember, oh my God, that happened because of you. And you got to name that uh, island wow, like, wow, yeah. dump or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially uh, if you guys are in lockdown, it's, uh, it'd be a great way to. Yeah, totally. I'm going to keep my eyes open. And then he's, little... he's gone on. He's uh, there's what's the, what's the other ones? There's, uh, they're not legacy ones, but he did uh, 2210. Do you know Risk 2210 AD? I do not. It's on Avalon Hill, and it uh, changes the game to make it more more heady. So there's more stuff going on, and it's a game that only lasts five rounds, and the winner is the one who has the most points. And there's another one called Godstorm, which is not, which is not. I think Rob Davio might have his hand in it, but it's it's a uh, Mike Selinker, who, who's a big, big name uh, too. He's, uh, he's worked for Avalon and TSR, Wizards of the Coast. Uh, and he started, his, he started his career writing crossword puzzles for Dragon Magazine for TSR. <laughs> wow, that that's cool. game design start. But his one, Godstorm, works off of the 2210 AD uh, risk game, but is uh, Greek deities fighting. Oh, okay, yeah. And there's an underworld. So whenever your risk, uh, whenever your your infantry, whenever your guys die, whenever your the dudes on the map die, they go and they can fight in the underworld. They keep fighting. Oh wow, wow! But wow, it also lasts just... five rounds. And uh, there's so many different risks now. Yeah. Rainer Kinesia did a Risk Express, with, which is just there's a has uh, we have Monopoly Express here. I should have got it out to show you. They made this uh, Express series where just little plastic tubs. And they're just hmm. risk games. Right. I have no idea how Risk Express would be. Seriously. So it doesn't really have a board. It's just some no. dice and some pieces. Yeah, and... I think there might be some cards and, and right. a bunch of dice. I haven't really looked into that one. I don't know. Yeah. I, new to me. New to you. Um, risk Legacy. Oh, there's, there's a homebrew uh, Risk Expansion. You can get a Risk really? Expansion. Wow. Wow. Like what's, what's that about? Is that where they bring the uh, the boats back? Bring the ships back? No, yeah, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of different. I don't even know if you can buy it retail. I just saw it on BGG when I was looking through all this stuff. Uh, it's a homebrew expansion called Twenty Forty Two, published by Table Tactics, and it's huh. got 
a bunch of different components and stuff and works with your regular risk board. Hmm. Sounds like it's like a, a sort of futuristic version of risk or something. Perhaps. Yeah, 2042, but does it, but it happens before 2210. So I'm wondering how futuristic hmm. is, it? is it? Did the guy think 2042, like is it robots and stuff? Thinking 2042 was far enough in the future when he came up with it that yeah. <laughs> and no one will notice. <laughs> Whoops. 2042 is not that far away now. No, it's not. <laughs> it's fascinating man like i didn't totally realize like i mean it makes sense to me that these sort of intellectual properties like risk and, and stuff like that like they want to push them a little bit further into something else than just a plain old risk game which is fun risk is great to play but um it's smart for companies to start finding ways to spruce it up a bit and like make the people come back to the game for another reason than just the old game let's let's try this new thing out, you know so that's pretty fascinating i had no idea but mm -hmm. your favorite is not is not risk uh that was my it's own not spiral. my favorite that was my own spiral i just thought it was fun because um i i've always just been amazed that we never played risk because i seriously it's weird. It's not my favorite game. And I would, if we were, if you were to come over to my house, I wouldn't say let's play risk. Right. right. But for the amount of time that we hung out together and we each had risk board and every house that we visited friends at probably also had, had a risk board. board for sure. <laughs> yeah. It never happened. But you know, if there's a Nintendo in the same room, we'd play the Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah. What are you gonna do? But you love uh, D and D. And, and your your favorite thing is uh, terrain and crafting and and miniature yep. stuff. So we should we should really talk to you about your stuff instead of my mindless. Ah, uh, that's cool, man. I, I'm super. I love getting informed about gaming and stuff. I had no no idea about some of the stuff you were saying, man. So no worries. Yeah, you you got into uh, D and D before high school. Yeah, just before high school, there was a couple guys from school. Um, and uh, they invited me over to play. I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, I knew it was just a strategy game, but I didn't even realize that there was, you could have miniatures and there was role playing and stuff like that. I, I was brand new to it. Um, was it and then? Was it, it yeah, advanced? it was, it was, it was second edition, and we were actually, yeah, you so 5e that's what you play the most now. Honestly, I went from two point, uh, uh from second edition. And then, and then I stopped playing D and D until I was uh, whatever forty three years old, <laughs> forty two years old. And um, so, when I was invited back, I think it was about five years ago. I met a, a, a new guy, and he was playing uh, second edition. And he asked, he was like, "Do you like D and D?" And I was like, "Well, I like it, but I haven't played it in like decades." And he's like, "Well, you should come over, and you know, I've got a group." And I was like, "Okay." And um, right away, hooked right back into it. It was just like, wow, I forgot how fun this is. And uh, we were, like I said, we were playing second edition. And then um, fifth edition was already out. And, um, you know, it kept coming up at the table. I hear, you know, I hear that 5e is a little more streamlined and that kind of thing. Um, and finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go pick up the player's handbook and the DMG and uh, just have a look at it. I want to see how much how more streamlined is it than second edition because my buddy had like 
all the second edition books and stuff. And, you know, it's like, might as well just play second edition because you have you get all the stuff. To that. Yeah, once you've had yeah, that kind yeah. of investment. Yeah, to, exactly. Hard to move past that. Totally, totally. Um, so I picked up the uh, Player's Handbook and the DMG, and uh, I was hooked right away. I could tell that it was just going to be, you know, less math, more role play, more, you know, just the letting the dice decide things. And um, so I was like, I was about ready to start my own campaign because I was like, I want to be the, the GM. And uh, I said, let's play 5e. Let's just give it a shot. And everybody agreed. And I think everybody was hooked right away. It yeah. was just, just so much simpler. And you're not like, you know, flipping through books for like an hour while you're playing, trying to find these certain charts. I mean, there is still some of that, but, um, you know, they removed Thacko, you know what Thacko is, obviously. And uh, it just, it's just streamlined everything. Less math in your head and you can just be more engaged at the table. And as a result of that, I was, I'm just the type of GM that really likes to set the scene at the table. And before I knew it, I was like, I was building just these little small terrain pieces out of cardboard, nothing fancy. I was just using stuff around the house. I didn't have like a workshop or anything like that. And um, I built some pieces for the beginning of my campaign and I painted them up and stuck them on the table. And it was just super cool to see my players' eyes light up when they hit the table because they were like, whoa, this is this is going to be fun. Like, you know, you can do theater of the mind and, and that's fun as well, but it's pretty cool when you sit down at a table and your GM like puts out all these buildings and mountains and trees. And now you have this sort of visual representation of where you're going to be in the, in the game. You know? okay. So that's kind of, you know, how I got back into it. And, and you've been painting history from that sort of painting and sculpting for years anyway. And this yeah, sort of yeah, gives you a, a gives you a real focus for, for your other hobbies. So well, of... you know what's cool about it is that at that time, like when I got back into D&D and then I started making the terrain and stuff, um, I had realized I hadn't really been sculpting and painting in quite a few years. Right. I was playing lots of music. I was I'm a musician, stuff like that. I had my hobbies were, you know, other things. And it was just really cool to get back into creating and painting stuff like that because i hadn't done it in so long and then it just sparked from there and now i'm just i, I can't stop <laughs> and uh, the world building was that always something you'd worked on have you always sort of done creative writing absolutely um, yeah. i mean even if i wasn't playing the games i mean you know me i we we both have active imaginations and we're, you know coming up with like cool stories and stuff in my head i've always been doing that so what was what would have been the next step for you? Well, I mean, the next step after creating some terrain, I, I basically, like I said, I, I was hooked. And now I wanted some tools because I wanted to yeah. um, use some different materials to build with. And one of the really common materials that you see these days is um, uh, XPS foam. Um, you can get it at hardware stores. It's basically the insulation they stick in between your walls, not the soft stuff. That's the yeah, hard, like the blue board and the stuff. pink yeah, board. Yeah, blue and, the... and pink, and it comes in yellow, I think. And did, the colors you are start, really more just a brand. Did you start with just insulation board before you found better materials? 
Would you no, just use packing I still use... foam and, and oh, see what I would see happen? What you're I actually did make a couple pieces with just some of the, the white packing foam from like, I don't even remember what it was, but it was some appliance we had bought. Um, I built a little castle, ruined castle piece. Um, and that stuff was cool, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't carve the same way yeah, as like XPS and... foam. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's a little more messier. Whenever, um, whenever I was uh, a little, a little kid, uh, my neighbor who was much older, uh, had a giant sandbox with white mm. sand in his basement to play star Wars. And it was basically, he'd built this giant hoth table. Oh, awesome. And so he'd taken <laughs> the packing foam from different TVs and whatever he could find and built Hoth bases. And Very cool. from him, we learned the trick uh, for making our first foam pieces was uh, dropping crazy glue to like melt oh, yeah. out the foam and get like yeah. blast scarring and then coloring mm-hmm. it with like markers and stuff. Uh, yeah. That's the extent yep. of my my foam foamsmanship. <laughs> I I tried to make a really bad sword once, but I don't. I I have never built. I have some of your pieces that I I reuse for photos, but yeah, yeah, that was it. Whenever I was a kid, I uh, made some really bad hoth forts. <laughs> breathed. That's pretty cool, though. Breathed fumes from melting styrofoam. You have you have saws. Uh, you shape it better. Yeah, so I like I said, I went and I started to you know invest in some equipment that helps you know to shape XPS foam. So there's I bought a, a hot wire cutter from a company called Proxon, and um, it's just like a table saw, but it's a hot wire and it just cuts right through that foam and it yeah. allows you to pretty much do anything you want. Um, you can buy hand carving ones and stuff, but I hear they're just not as reliable. They don't last as long. So I invested in a good table, like a hot wire table. And uh, yeah, I just started going from there and things got more complicated and more complicated and bigger. And I was watching, <laughs> it just gives you the ability to do more. I was watching uh, your trees. You really like trees. And you started, uh, I don't know if you saw somebody's tutorial or something, but you started making leaves on trees out of like, rice and oats and stuff now and yeah and like yeah, so mushrooms out of peas and yeah is it so that's the thing i like about you know um like building terrain like there's so many companies out there now and with the explosion of like tabletop gaming that you can go out there and if you want to if you want to make trees you can buy you know some flocking and you can buy prefabricated uh tree trunks and you know and put them together but it's just it's it costs money after a while. Like it all builds up, you know? Um, and so I have a buddy. Um, his name is Frankie, Frankie D. Crafter. He's another crafter in the community. And uh, he came up with this idea where he, he literally just took oats, fresh oats, and sort of sculpted them around some, um, it's almost like a, a paper mache clay. Right. Uh, that you, you, it, it comes dry, you mix it with water. And then he put these oats on there and painted it. And it, it just looks so cool. It looks like, you know, leaves. Once you paint it up in green and, and whatnot, it, it looks very cool. It's kind of got a um, more of a fantasy cartoonish look than a realistic look. If, yeah, yeah. You know, some people, some people are different. Some people want their table to look very realistic, like a uh, more along the lines of... Uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? Like, um, what are they called? Like train builders. Like, yeah, uh, right, right. Like the people, scale modeling. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and they go for that very realistic look. Me personally, I, I, I'm kind of more. I have a fantasy eye for things, so I don't care if things look absolutely real, and I don't mind if there's a little bit of fantasy color in things and stuff like that. Yeah, if it's a a game where it's something like like Dungeons Dragons and Pathfinder, where you're the whole thing is to use your imagination. Uh, you can mm-hmm. have a couple nice terrain pieces and then like you can put your highlighter where it needs to go and a salt shaker yeah, if you yeah. need it and it'll all oh, work totally. out you know i have uh, i have this lego tree and i have this one that my friend crafted and we're gonna put them beside each other and, and <laughs> yeah, that's our yeah. forest there you go yeah so. yeah totally i'm totally into that whatever people have put it on the table you know you need something for markers don't worry whether it's realistic looking or not i mean i have even though I have a ton of terrain that I've built over the years, I still find myself grabbing little wooden blocks that I have for markers or something like that, just because I don't have a specific thing that it's supposed to look like. So I, yeah, I encourage people just use what you have, you know, and, then, and that's what I did in the beginning. And it, but it just got bigger and bigger as I kept crafting. <laughs> and that, that works with, uh, in a weird way, you have minis where a lot of people can play with them plain, you know, plain gray, mm-hmm. plain colored mm-hmm. mini, and then other people uh, just as, as the art, as the craft have to get it as realistic as possible. And, right. And now, yeah. now, now there's a lot uh, of advancements with 3D printing and you have uh, full color printing coming out now. Yeah, I know. Places right? Like Hero Forge and you can actually, for home printing, you can buy just sort of an add-on box that uh, is basically a computer chip and nozzles and will will shift your colors as you're printing on on the system that you already have so people can right, actually yeah. print and i i think that's i i think you and everybody that paints minis i have a friend in town that's painted mine and that's amazing and i don't think that'll ever go out of style but no there are so many people who would love to have colored minis and either are never going to try painting it themselves or are never going to commission uh, someone to, paint to them. do it for them so yeah no so it's a great balance and, right? and, for, and you know for board games I, where minis have blown up in board games like mm-hmm. almost any game going on kickstarter now that's that's the goal is to push more minis and it's yeah it's really pushing the, the price of games up but it's i think i think it immediately gives immersion to people i think no matter yeah. what the game is if there's really nicely sculpted miniatures it automatically ties people in, into that game, you know, like they, yeah, it adds yeah. to immersion. Uh, but being able to print full color minis, you know, that I think that's a, that's kind of exciting. I, I might. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And I when, they, when Hero Forge came out with, uh, you know, their whole, their Kickstarter and announced like, look, here's the, the color minis you're going to be able to buy from us. Um, I saw a lot of talk in the, in the miniature painting community about like, well, this sucks. Like, who's going to want to commission me if they can just get, you know, buy it straight up and, and do the colors themselves and, and just have it delivered to them? And then I was saying to people, well, think about this, though. Wizards of the Coast and the mini companies that are already out there, they're already making fully colored miniatures that you can buy. Yeah. And you can obviously still buy unpainted miniatures. And that hasn't stopped 
people from commissioning minis and stuff. So I, I think it's just an extra thing in the market and it's good for it. It's, you know, like you said, some people aren't going to be able to commission and they're not going to start painting minis. And so there's an option for them. People who paint minis are going to still buy the Hero Forge full color minis because it just speeds the process. Like no, they don't totally. come with, they don't come with shadow washes. They don't come with, with finished texture. They don't come with Chrome. They don't come. So, I mean, it just cuts your yeah. paint time down. Uh, you know, you get your base, you, especially with Hero Forge, where you get to pick your stuff. You go in, yeah. you set up your mini, you pick your colors. You basically you're putting in your base coats, and and then you're getting something that's that's already going, and you get and you get done faster, and you're happier. Yeah, so totally, I, I don't even totally. think it's going to slow people down. For may, maybe there might be a people who are will never do that. Uh, but no, well, of course, it's going to be all kinds of different, uh, you know, attitudes and the way different, you know, ways people want to get their miniatures and get them painted but i think more option is better than less option that's my opinion on it all. and mm -hmm. and all of these new options are better than uh the old lead minis that we used to use uh, i think they're less poisonous i think i think they're better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i like <laughs> that back in the day probably when something bends now you can put it under the hot water tap and sort of bend it back instead yeah, of like yeah. it falling off and breaking there's a you know story you probably remember Sentry Box and I've talked to the owner and one of the things he said to me was uh, we're literally in the golden age of minis now yeah, because yeah. you go into a, a, a gaming store that sells minis and the amount of companies and the price points are so good like I remember when I, when I was playing you know high school early high school I was going and I was looking at and it was all metal miniatures back then and they were pretty pricey. Like, I don't remember exactly, but I remember, you know, at the age I was going like, well, I can't really afford a lot of these. But now you can, I mean, if you've got $20, you can walk out with a handful of miniatures. It's, it's amazing. And there's everything, everything you could possibly want, you know? And there's more coming every day. And the sculpting so. now is mind -blowing. Oh, it's I, totally, because I mean, I, I'm sure that there definitely is still people hand sculpting, but I mean, a lot of it's being done digitally now, which just gives you so much yeah, yeah. power. It's uh, I don't, there's uh, people always have weird things when something's done digitally, but I mean, it's the same, mm -hmm. it's the same time. It's the same hand tools. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, they're different hand tools, but it's a digital pen and people are still sculpting. It's pretty. Yeah. You, you still have to know the basics of sculpting. It doesn't do it for you just because it's digital. You know, you have to understand the fundamentals of shaping things and whatnot. We have uh, Lord of the Rings journey of the ring, which is a fairly new game. And it's a, it's an app interface game where oh, okay. you build terrain map and there's like a, a fog of war going on. And as you move, the app will tell you what's happening. The app deals with combat. You have, you have a deck of cards that is your combat and then you enter, you know, there's a skill check and you flip over your cards and you say what you got and okay, combat yeah. and you flip over your cards and use whatever you can. You, you know, punch in and then it tells the story and expands the stuff. And that game comes with uh, beautiful, beautiful sculpted minis. And like any any big game, any game that's like a hundred dollars now is almost guaranteed yeah. to have a set of minis in it. Yeah. Well, that's not true. Some games still wood wood meeple. I prefer. Uh, I still prefer wood meeple. Like I would like that game just as much if it was tiny little uh, wooden people. Wooden guys, yeah. That's that's a, that's an aesthetic. <laughs> That, yeah, that I dig. Personal. I don't. I don't know if I would like to play Pathfinder with a with a little wooden mini. 
it feels maybe there's a disconnect in my brain that that's what D and D is. And maybe that's, but I don't know. That's right. Me. Right. But I still love them. We have, we have another game. Uh, it's one of our favorite games called uh, wasteland express delivery service. And they're, they're mini basically Mad Max cars. Uh, oh, I think I've seen you post about that before. Oh, yeah. yeah. And people paint those and th- those are amazing. Those are super fun. If, if I was to have any of my minis painted, I would probably commission to get those painted, but yeah, but I probably won't. <laughs> I don't mind that they're gray. Well, the mini thing was funny for me because my the guy that invited me back in the, to get into D and D again, he had um, just a huge shelf in his house full of minis. So that was one of the things we would play at his house, and I'd bring over the terrain that I was building, and I'd get to use his minis in my campaign. Um, and then I wanted to start up some other campaigns and I wanted to start playing in my house with some other different people. And uh, I realized, well, I got all this terrain and I have no minis now. <laughs> like, I always just use my buddy's minis. So there was a rabbit hole I had to go down and then I started painting minis again. Yeah, yeah. Now I've got a pretty good collection. And you, you, you know. You kickstarted a couple say, of packs, or yeah, yeah, totally. It, it's it's the best way these days to to get a lot of minis. Like you see it in the forums and on social media all the time with new players and GMs, where they're like, uh, "How do I get a, like a whole lot of minis really cheap?" And the answer is, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like it's going to cost you money. You know, the price points have come down for some companies like WizKids, and um, but. Yeah, you're just going to have to spend money to get them. But for me, uh, the best way that I've found is, um, and I'm not the only one, everybody's sort of caught on now, is doing the Kickstarters. I mean, where I, I, the first one I went into was the Reaper Bones 4 Kickstarter. I think I spent $250. And I, I don't know, I, I, I didn't count them all, but I have hundreds of minis, like way more than, you know, $250. The, the amount that I, I got in minis probably would have been retail $700, $800 for yeah. $250. And, um, and it's pretty awesome. You just, you get a lot of minis and then now bones five is, is like about to come out. Well, it is out, but um, yeah, same thing. Like I, I opted into that. I'm probably going to spend another $250 and I'm going to get another, you know, like $700 worth of minis. And yeah, it's, the best way, I think, if you're looking to get, to, to get you know, build up, yeah, 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 exactly. And if you don't, if you're not looking for bulk and you don't don't care about specific types of minis, then just crawl uh, game sales and look for uh, like WizKids in like Amazon and like game, yeah. game stores are often uh, getting rid of old stock. So like, yeah, sets of like three adventurers might be six dollars instead of fourteen. Oh, totally. Most gaming stores have some sort of, you know, bargain deal, bins. like old, yeah, bargain bin miniatures that are marked down and stuff. Yep, my, for my sure. Favorite place to shop, bargain bin in game stores. I, I don't need the brand new game. I just, if, if that game's good and that's seventy-five percent <laughs> off, I'm going to try that game. Well, you know, there's those D and D games. Like, there's, I think, they're based off of the intellectual property. It, like, uh, there's a Curse of Strahd. Yeah, yeah. There's one called The Wrath of a, a Shardalon or whatever the dragon. Yeah, there's a um, new uh, Waterdeep uh, something too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, those games for the price, it's not bad. Like, if if you can find it cheaper, like, like they retail or something, they retail at about hundred and forty dollars. 
and like sometimes really? you can Are they that find, much? yeah sometimes oh, okay <clears throat> and you can get them sometimes in in a hobby store you can get them for like 90 or 100 and sometimes right. on sale you can get them for like 60 or 70 and and then they're they're gold but they, they'll come yeah. with a bunch of stuff yeah well if you think about it one okay say and, $140. and i think they're really getting, fun games I've, yeah I've heard you're getting a cool game it. that you can play you know and whatnot but you're also getting I mean, the the Wrath of the Shardalon, or however you pronounce that dragon's name, um, I think there's probably like 30 minis in it or something like that. They, they might not be the same scale. They, well, they, they, the... sometimes they're a little bit smaller or a tiny bit bigger. But I mean, if you've got nothing and you're looking for something, and you, I mean, if you get 30 minis in a store and you're paying just like retail, it's going to be more than $140. Yeah simple as that so I, I i tell people to look out for those if you know because if you do find it cheaper pick it up you can paint them and even if they're a little off scale it's not a big deal i mean even companies like between gw and like the wizards of the coast stuff like wiz kids there's a scale difference there but what i've always wondered and now especially since since 3d printing has sort of taken over mm. uh, how come they haven't changed the scale you know, if you just made the scale slightly smaller, everything would be cheaper. Everything would be cheaper. You could get, mm, right. uh, you, yeah. uh, you know, scale down the maps. Maps would fit in books better. Uh, all kinds of things. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, you get the detail is, like, on, a, on of... a tiny mini now, just as good as a, or better than, than a lead mini was in the 80s. Oh, on for a, sure. You know, on a one-inch mini now. I mean, it's not as fun to play. It's a dumb thought, but I was just thinking... Hey, because there's a there's a D and D game called uh, Tyrants of the Underdark, which is a really fun area control game, and it comes with like just hordes of like sort of like Risk style minis, mm. and like, and I would play with those. There's like tiny, but oh, totally. I mean, there's That's already tons of I'm war games that. out there. <laughs> there's already tons of war games out there that have been around for you know a long time, where the the scale is smaller than 28 miniature um 28 millimeter because they're like they're literally they're setting up huge armies on the table right and they're reenacting the napoleonic wars or something and uh yeah you know so little minis have been around for a long time so it's a good it's an interesting thought there was a cthulhu game that i got kick-started recently and it had a it had a, a big mini. huge mini right oh my god it was yeah. the size of a toddler just this giant it's really big eh? enormous <laughs> i love it that the dragons though like the dragons are getting bigger and bigger now and i like that just they're one of my favorite things to paint and so it's that's, cool to see a lot of these i think that's a really important uh those are the important minis to have for for tabletop games because understanding the the, understanding the scale of some of the hmm. monsters uh, mm -hmm. is it doesn't really register you know like okay yeah. well, this thing is humongous well what does that mean and like, yeah, to be able to totally. like put the dragon there <laughs> Yeah, like you, totally. you can actually and, feel that fear in your mini. Yeah, that was one of the first things I did when I started to get into the mini collecting is um, I was just focusing on monsters because as a GM, it's like, well, the players are going to bring their own minis for their characters, you know? I just need monsters to throw at them. <laughs> kind of thing, you know? So um, I focused on monsters in the beginning. I think that's a smart thing to do if you're new to the game or new to GMing and you and you new to buying minis. It's like, 
focus on the things that you're going to need to throw at your players rather than getting all kinds of NPCs and, you know, player character sort of meanings. And then once you got a bunch of monsters, then you can like move into that sort of realm of, you know, getting knights and barbarians and stuff like that. Uh, one more quick thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Starting painting minis, how much do you spend on, on paint? Because that's a, that's a whole other world. That's part of it. Right? Yeah. You get uh, a lot so, of the, so many companies that sell specific sets, uh, but, mm-hmm. but for cheap, you can go down and use uh, acrylic craft paints, right? Like you can, the acrylic craft paints, they, um, they'll work. And some of the first minis I painted, I used acrylic craft paints from Michael's cause that's all I had. Um, but they, uh, the pigment in them is, is much bigger. Um, so when you're the, the the paint just doesn't lay down very well right. on it gets clumpy. um you're gonna yeah it gets clumpy it's thick uh, you're gonna have to do a lot of layers if you want to get a really bold color um but you can do it it does work um what i did was like you said there's a lot of companies that sell sets out there um the particular set i got you can get it on amazon it's from a company called army painter and um i Think of it about $150 for a 50 paint set. And it gives you, you know, all your primary colors and then a whole bunch of other, you know, colors. Um, plus there's, I think there was three or four, maybe even five washes in it. And um, and then they had a couple of like little effects, like one was like a blood effect and another one's, I think it was like a rust effect. Right. Anyways, for that cost, $150, you, it, go to the store and buy Vallejo or, or GW paints, $150 isn't going to get you 50 paints. It's just, it's just not. Yeah. So that army painter set is a pretty good deal. If you're starting out. Um, I know some people say it's not the best quality paint. I have no problems with it, especially when you're starting out, you know, I can't complain. I do buy Vallejo paints now when I can, but I, for a beginner and a starter set, that army painter set is like probably the way to go. There's a few other companies out there, but I think that one is probably the best value for dollar. And they seem like the, the bottles of paint last you a lot better than say in the eighties oh, yeah. when you're you buying a bottle of testers to paint a model. And oh yeah, you, no, it's very, it's way different. You don't need as much. Like the pigment is so much smaller in the paint. You just, you just put a little dab and then you always mix water in with your paint. It's just like a, it's a given. You're supposed to do that. And um, yeah, it's, it lasts a while. You know, I, I, I've bought an extra paints, like extra paint colors since I bought that, um, that set. And um, I haven't replaced any of the initial colors from that set yet. So um, it lasts. Just it also a, depends on how much painting you do. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the actual uh, Aliens cardboard that you did. Oh, right. Like you did... Um, that was for a, a one-shot campaign for yeah. the cardboard the cardboard terrain that that you sort of blew up for a bit on twitter was yeah, was built for a, pretty big. an aliens one-shot uh, campaign yeah. that you were going to spring on your group yeah how did it and i haven't sprung it yet <laughs> oh okay that was gonna be the second question uh <laughs> yeah. what how did that start like you saw somebody else's cardboard stuff yeah and thought, what can I, I there's do with another that? guy in the community his name is uh, i don't know his actual name but it is uh instagram was uh cardboard dm yeah. and he um 
He just makes all of his terrain out of straight brown cardboard and uses black markers to detail it. And it's amazing. And it's super amazing. Yeah. It's like, I would be happy to have it on my table, any of his stuff on my table, anytime. It looks great. It's functional and it's cheap to make. You literally hot glue, markers and cardboard. That's it. And imagination. And um, I was like, huh, I want to try something like that. And I hadn't, you know, everything I focused on is pretty much D&D related. So it was all fantasy based. Um, you know, sword and sorcery kind of thing. And uh, I've never made any sci-fi terrain or anything outside of, you know, the fantasy stuff. So I was like, oh, maybe this is a good time. And I just started sketching some ideas. And I had in my head, like, a sort of, I was like, it'd be cool to do something like a an alien setting, you know, felt like from the movies, kind of that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, I just did some sketches. And then I just started cutting and using markers and in the beginning i was doing like the first couple pieces i built i was kind of doing a little too much detail with the markers i think right and as i started building i was just simplifying it and just make it like just the detail just had to be lines and give you the basic sense that you're like looking at a space station door and you know that kind of thing um, and it just grew and grew and grew until I built this whole little space station. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm going to totally run a, I have a, actually have a, a 5e supplement. It was a homebrew done by somebody for, for aliens. It's got all the stuff so you can run a, a game in 5e. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to spring a one shot on my group one day. And I haven't yet, unfortunately. Funny talking about this though. Um, have you heard of the game? It's there was actually an announcement. It was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back uh, from Gale Force Nine. It's called Another Day in the Core, nope. and it's an alien game. Um, it was supposed to come out last year, but like I said, it get kept getting pushed. They just announced, I think it was like two weeks ago on their Twitter, that the game is finally coming out in October this year, and I'm really excited about it because. Um, so it's a board game, yeah. but like we were saying, it comes with miniatures. So it comes with like, I think five or six um, xenomorphs, and then it comes with like the, your colonial Marines. And uh, I don't know how the game is played yet, that type of thing, I, you know, but if you look it up, you'll see there's some dice and some cards and a, and a board. But uh, the price point on the game, they, they were saying, I believe is like 49.99 American. And I was like, that is so so that's going to be like 69 or 79 here and you get like these really awesome xenomorph miniatures and these colonial marines and i'm like well i'm going to buy this game when i run my one shot because i want those miniatures because <laughs> i looked up trying to get xenomorph miniatures like from the the uh, aliens versus predator um gaming series and stuff and they're just so expensive now like aftermarket and uh. i'm not going to pay it crazy money like that just to get some xenomorphs but I don't know. This game looks pretty cool. I think I'm going to probably pick it up when it comes out in October. Uh, thanks again, Ryan, for, for sitting in for Steve. And if anybody's listening and you want to check out Ryan's stuff, his uh, Instagram handle, his Twitter handle, and I think you're on Facebook too? I do have a Facebook. Facebook? Yeah, I don't really post Not so much, much to Facebook, but uh, yeah. if you're searching around the, the social universe for great uh, mini crafting, terrain crafting, Ryan runs uh, Spider Dog Crafting. And yeah, it's at, at Spider Dog Crafts on Twitter and then just Spider Dog Crafting on Instagram. Check it out. Mm. 
and and go oh. and check out the the cardboard terrain that he did for the aliens uh, one shot. Yeah, that's on my Instagram. It's on my Twitter too, but you'll find it quicker on my Instagram if you go there. It's it's worth checking out. Uh, thanks again, Ryan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna thank you. I'm gonna go. See ya. Cool. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you.